learn our procedures and processes in in life to to which we submit ourselves that aren't enjoyable to go through, but that we go through anyway because we know they are for our good. We schedule service surgeries when we need to, not because they're enjoyable or because you know we just put it on the calendar and think, oh yeah, that's surgery day. Uh, you know, just put it on there. You know, yes. You know, we put it. We put little. You know, like the little emoji with the, the hat and the little sparkles coming out of it. We don't put that next to surgery day on the calendar, but we put that on the calendar uh, not because we enjoy being cut open, but because we know that procedure is for our health, it's for our good. The surgery might even be to remove something bad from our body so that we can be healthy, so that we can, our body can be restored to what it's supposed to be. And we go to the dentist not because it's fun to get our teeth poked and and rubbed and, and prodded, or because we like being feeling guilty about not flossing, you know, nobody ever answers that question, right? You know, how often do you floss? You know, we all feel guilty and shameful after getting asked that question. Maybe not everybody, but um, but I always feel bad about it. You know, don't, don't you always start flossing like the two weeks before going to the dentist? Like, I know they're going to ask me, and so you start flossing, and you say your gums don't bleed. You know, like, gums are bleeding a lot. How often do you floss? They're always the evidence. They always know. Uh, but no one ever wants to feel guilty. But we go to the dentist because it keeps our teeth healthy. It's not a fun process, but there's a good outcome. And if you're a parent, you, you wish your kids would understand uh, that sometimes there's things that aren't fun to go through in life, and you wish they would understand that it may not be fun now, but there's a good outcome. You wish they would understand that sooner rather than later. And the process of, even the simple thing of putting on a jacket, you understand that this isn't very fun to do, and, but it's going to be a good outcome. You wish they would understand that sooner rather than later. And you need to, a toddler understanding, you need to submit yourself to this process of putting on a jacket so that you can have this good outcome. What, what fun is it to put on that jacket when I just want to get outside and play now? I don't want to submit myself to this process. But we know the quicker you put on this jacket, uh, the quicker you can get outside. And then once you're outside, you're not going to be miserable and cold. And it's going to be more fun when you're outside. And it's going to protect your body from getting hurt. But... Uh, to a toddler, it's like, this is just not fun. This isn't exciting. I don't want to do this. I just want to be out there doing that thing. I don't want to be submit to this process, this boring thing of putting on my jacket. I just want to get to that thing. And we would say, no, you got to submit yourself to this thing that may not be very fun or enjoyable, but it has a good outcome. And as children, it took all of us time uh, to learn that there are many things in life that might be hard or difficult and maybe even painful that we need to submit ourselves to because they're for our good in the long run. That it doesn't feel good in the moment, but the outcome of it is good uh, at the end. And this week we're continuing our series called Pictures of Following Jesus. And the Bible tells us that we need to repent, to believe in Jesus, to trust in Him, to have faith. But we may ask, what does all that mean? We're told following Jesus means to trust Him, believe in Him, repent. But what does all that all that mean? And we've been doing this pictures of following Jesus because a picture is worth a, a thousand words. We've done this is our sixth and final passage. Next week is a bonus about following Jesus, but it's a picture uh, of something else um, about what it looks like for every uh, people from all sorts of. Uh, nations and tribes and tongues to be worshiping Jesus, every man, woman, child um, kind of thing uh, from all sorts of peoples be worshiping him. Um, but these pictures of, what is a picture 
words, a thousand words, following Jesus look like? And uh, just take a moment to flip to the back of your songbook. And that's, this has been our roadmap for what it's, we've been going through. <coughs> Very last page, number 46. Uh, so first we looked at a picture of, <coughs> as a community we are uh, surrendering all of life to Jesus and inviting others to do the same. So we looked at a picture of surrender. What does it look like to surrender our lives to Jesus? And then moving down further, we surrender our lives by practicing, believing the gospel. So we looked at a, what's a picture of the gospel and what does it look like to be embraced by God? You know, picture of the gospel is being embraced by God and Him rejoicing and celebrating that we've turned to Him. That's what a picture of the, the good news is. Then we looked at a picture of living as family together. And then we looked at a picture of loving as servants. Then we looked at a picture of going as messengers. And today we're looking at a picture of relying on the Spirit. And all of our pictures, and this is a picture, or this series is called Pictures of Following Jesus, uh, but our picture today is Jesus himself showing us how to rely on the Spirit. Uh, he's our model, so it's technically not someone following Jesus, but it's Jesus himself showing us what does it look like to rely on the Spirit. And in the Gospel according to Luke chapter 4, verse 1, we see two references to the Spirit right off the bat. But if we backed up just a bit... We'd see even more of the Spirit. So back up to chapter 3, if you're in the Gospel according to Luke, that's chapter 4, that's where we're going to be focusing. But back up to chapter 3, verse 21. And we would see a man named John the Baptist, and if you don't know who John the Baptist is, he was preparing the way for Jesus. That was like his, his role, his vocation. He was like, my job is, basically he saw it as I'm rolling out the red carpet. God's kingdom is coming, and the king is coming. And you know, like kind of like in Hollywood, you roll up the red carpet for these famous people to come. And the king is coming, and John's like, I'm preparing the way. I'm rolling up the red carpet. I'm getting things ready for the king to come. So he's doing this by, I'm baptizing people, which is a sign of, I want to clean my life up, but also a sign of forgiveness that I receive God's grace and mercy. I'm forgiven for my past, but I also want to move forward living a new life. I don't want to just be like, okay, sweet God, you've... I'm forgiven, I'm just going to keep doing my same thing. But I'm forgiven for my past, and I want to live a new life, and I'm going to keep receiving forgiveness, but I want to be new. And he's preparing people for Jesus' coming. So John's baptizing people in the Jordan River in Israel, and Jesus also came to him to get baptized. And so let's read in Luke chapter 3, verses 21 to 22. It says, Now when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus also had been baptized, and was praying... The heavens were opened, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. And so here, God from heaven publicly affirms that Jesus is his Son. He affirms his love for Jesus, and he affirms his pleasure and his delight in Jesus as his Son. And then he marks and seals Jesus as his son with the Holy Spirit. God is with Jesus and he's empowering Jesus by the Holy Spirit. So his son, he loves him, delights in him, takes pleasure in him, and then he seals all that with the Holy Spirit. Like, I'm with this guy. Like, this is my son. It's all sealed and marked as God's son by the Holy Spirit and he's empowered by the Holy Spirit. And then if we immediately read the next passage, it says genealogy, which is a, you know, so-and-so was the son of so-and-so, and so-and-so was the son of so-and-so. 
and it traces Jesus and traces all the way back to Adam and says, Adam, the son of God. And Adam wasn't the son of God in the same way that Jesus is the son of God. He was created from dust. But in that way, Adam was the son of God, created by God. And so he's a created being who is created by God, and so he's the son of God in that way. Jesus is the eternal son of God, never created. But so it's showing Jesus was the eternal son of God, but now he's also become flesh. He's now descended from the you know, Adam as a son of God as well. And so, you know, son of God in all, in all ways. And then when we come to chapter 4, verse 1, we read, And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness. Jesus leaves the Jordan River after being baptized, after the affirmation from his heavenly Father of his sonship, and after the affirmation of the Father's love, after the affirmation of his, the Father's pleasure with him and delight in him, and after the Holy Spirit coming on him, and he's full of the Holy Spirit, and he's led by the Spirit where? Into the wilderness, out into the desert. And what happens there? Verse 2 says, in the wilderness, where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil. He ate nothing during those days, and at the end of them, he was hungry. And that's maybe not quite what we'd expect. We'd maybe think, all right, Holy Spirit comes on him, and we maybe think, all right, full of the Holy Spirit, led by the Holy Spirit to do what? To go preach the best sermon he's ever preached in his life. Boom, and all these people are come to know him and are converted, and he's got all these followers. Or maybe he's led to perform the greatest miracle he's ever performed in his life, full of the Holy Spirit, led to go do this amazing thing. But instead he goes off into the wilderness alone for 40 days to be tempted by the devil and eats nothing. And at the end of the 40 days, he becomes hungry. And why does the Holy Spirit lead him there? Why is that where he goes after the Holy Spirit comes on him, after he has this you know, affirmation from heaven and he's full of the Holy Spirit and gets led there? Why is that what happens? Well, God created the world in Genesis 1 and 2. He created a garden where he placed the first humans, Adam and Eve. And in the center of that garden, he placed a tree called the knowledge of good and evil. And uh, God said, you can eat from any tree in the garden except that tree. If you eat from that tree, you are surely going to die. And the tree represents this choice. It's the knowledge of good and evil. It's this choice. Are you going to let God define good and evil, right from wrong, or are you going to define it for yourself? Are you going to trust God to be the one who says, this is how you're supposed to live? Or are you going to define how you're going to live on your own terms? Are you going to go God's way or are you going to go your own way? In Genesis 3, which Emma read for us, we read how Adam and Eve were tempted by the serpent, which we now know as Satan or the devil. They were tempted to eat from that tree, to define good and evil on their own terms, to define right and wrong in their own terms, to go their own way instead of God's way. And they chose to go their own way, to trust in themselves and their own judgment, to go their own way rather than God's. And sin and death and curse entered the world that day. And then God later called the people of Israel to be different, to live according to his law, to his commandments that reflect his love, his goodness, his mercy, his justice, his righteousness. And Adam, in a certain sense, was the son of God, as we said. And Israel, too, in another sense, was the son of God. That's what God called them. He like kind of adopts them and says, you're now my son. And God called that nation his son. He gave them the same choice as Adam and Eve. Trust me to define good and evil. Here's my commands. I want you to live my righteousness 
and reflect my mercy, my goodness, my love, my justice to the world. Don't define it on your own terms. Don't define goodness on your own terms. Don't define right and wrong in your own terms. Reflect my definition of it. You warn that if you define it for yourselves, you're choosing death. You're choosing to separate yourself from me. You're choosing to go your own way. They too fell into the temptation of the serpent or the devil or Satan. The Holy Spirit led Jesus to the front lines of the same spiritual battle that Adam faced and Eve faced and then the nation of Israel faced to go through the final test that would qualify him for his mission as the Son of God. I mean, Jesus had the most ultimate mission of all. He's going to die for the sins of mankind. Is he qualified to die for the sins of mankind? Because if he's going to fall into the same temptation that every other person fell into, then how can he die for the sins of everybody else if he's going to fall into that same temptation? The Son of God has come to fulfill the mission of God, to seek and save the lost, and to give his life on the cross. But he must resist the temptation of the devil and not give in where God's other sons have given in. And each of the devil's temptations to Jesus begins with an if statement. And if you're this, if this, if this, if you'll do this. And Jesus' responses give clarity to what is the actual temptation taking place. (coughs) Jesus responds in each one with a quote from Scripture, all from the same three chapters of the Bible, Deuteronomy 6 to 8. And each of the temptations is one that the people of Israel (coughs) go super deep into the temptations because this is a a sermon on the Spirit. It would be awesome if we could go and really super deep into all how this is a reflection of what Israel is going through, but they all are going back to this is a temptation that the people of Israel face, and they all get answered from Deuteronomy chapter 6 to 8. Um, and so that'd be really fun to go into, but we can't. But Jesus' responses give clarity what the actual temptation is. And so the first one in verse 3 the devil said, so he's really hungry, he hasn't eaten for 40 days. Uh, the devil said to him, If you're the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone. Now, if we continue that, the quotation of that verse, he goes on to say, But by every word that comes from the mouth of God. And so he's saying, Man, man doesn't live on bread alone. That's not our only sustenance. We live on every word that comes from the mouth of God. And so. The only the thing, you know, we're not just sad, the thing that's satisfied isn't all this you know, material word and bread and food. Like, no, I'm going to live on, on God. God is the, my ultimate sustenance, the ultimate one who provides for me. And so the first temptation is this. If you're the son of God, use it to your own advantage. You're hungry. You have the power to turn this bread into this rock into bread. Well, use it to your own advantage. Why be in need and want? If you're the Son of God, you have the power to turn the stone into bread. Why not take, make some lunch for yourself? And so if you're the Son of God, use it to your own advantage. And Jesus' response shows that he sees this as a temptation to believe God isn't enough for him. He sees it as a temptation to trust someone other than God to provide for him and sustain him. And he would rather deny himself, deny himself food than to look away from God in that moment. And so he says, I'm not going to use whatever rights and privileges I have as the Son of God, because the devil's not questioning, like, okay, you're the Son of God. Uh, I'll give you that. Um, Why don't you use that to your own advantage? And so he's trying to get him to say, like, you know, you deserve better than you're being treated right now. And he said, no, I'd rather deny my right, whatever rights you may be trying to say that I have, I'd rather deny myself and look to God for my ultimate satisfaction. The second temptation 
is in verse 5. The devil took him up, showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time, and said to him, To you I will give all this authority and their glory, for it has been delivered to me, and I give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. And Jesus answered him, It is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. So this temptation, if I was rewording it, would be, If you will worship me, you can have what God promised now. If you will worship me, you can have what God promised now. Because if we read, kept reading Jesus' story, what's going to happen? He's going to die. He's resurrected. And what happens? He ascends to the right hand of God. And what does he have? All authority in heaven and on earth. What does Satan <laughs> promise him? All authority on earth. He doesn't promise him all authority in heaven. And so it's like you can have half of what God is going to give you, but you can have it now if you just bow down to me. And so Jesus, in the end, we read in Philippians 2 that uh, you know, he's going to get the special, most special status in the universe. He's the Son of God. He's saying, all you have to do, if, you know, if you're the Son of God, just turn this bread into stone. Like, you don't have to be in want or hunger. And now he's saying, well, if you just worship me, you can have you know, half of what God's going to give you. You, know, you just got to you know, sell out to me. Kind of like a sell your soul to the devil type moment you know, that we see you know, often in uh, movies or pop culture. But his mission on earth is to give his life, to die the death we deserve. He's on this rescue mission to go to the cross. And the temptation to hear is, you know, why don't you just skip the suffering? Why don't you skip the death? Just bow down to me. Don't do God's plan. And you can get half of what, I'll give you half of what he's offering you. uh, And you can skip all the hard stuff. And do you remember what happens when Jesus asks his disciples who they say he is? And Peter says, you're the Messiah. And Jesus says, you're right. And then he starts telling him, and I'm going to suffer, and I'm going to die. Peter takes him off the side and rebukes him. Lord, this is never going to happen to you. And what does Jesus say to Peter? Get behind me, Satan, for you are a hindrance to me. If you're not setting your your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And Jesus, in that moment, sees that Peter has aligned himself, himself with the mind of Satan. He wants him to avoid the cross, just like Satan wanted him to avoid the cross. Jesus recognizes the same temptation right there of how Satan is using Peter to, you don't need to suffer and die, just go for the glory. And he says, get behind me, Satan. Your mind is set on the things of man and not on the things of God. If Jesus gave in, he sees that he wouldn't be worshiping and serving God. He'd be serving some other plan, his own plan, Satan's plan. He would be seeking his own glory rather than God's plan. He says, I'm going to serve one God and one master. And we could argue about, okay, does the devil actually have the power and authority to hand this over to him? I mean, ultimately God has the power and authority over all things. And we can get into the, the debate about it. But Jesus doesn't even get into the debate. He doesn't debate with Satan. He just quotes... No, I'm not going to worship and serve anybody but God. Whatever, we don't debate with Satan. He just goes and quotes scripture. And thirdly, last temptation in verse 9. He took him to Jerusalem, set him on the pinnacle of the temple, and said to him, If you're the Son of God, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, 
to guard you. And on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered him, It is written, or it is said, You shall not put your Lord, the Lord your God, to the test. So, reworded. If you're the Son of God, test God's care and protection of you. If you're the Son of God, test God's care and protection of you. Jesus has been using God's word to combat Satan. And so, uh, the devil decides, okay, I'll use God's word too. So he quotes Psalm 91. Okay, if you're the Son of God, you know, Psalm 91 talks about God's faithful people. He's not going to let them be hurt. Um, so, okay, you're the son of God, you're supposedly God's faithful one, and he loves you and cares about you. Throw yourself off the temple. Let's see how much he loves you. Will he protect his faithful one? Will he protect his son? Let's see if he cares about you. Let's test him in it. God says he'll protect you. Why not see if he really will do what he says? You're the son of God. That means you're faithful, right? So see if God's really trustworthy on his end. You're faithful. Let's see if he is. And if Jesus gave in, he sees that he'd be putting God to the test rather than trusting him. And he says, no, I'm not going to do that. No, I will not put my Lord, the Lord my God to the test. Both Adam and Israel failed the test when tempted by Satan. They did not remain faithful. And Jesus, Jesus succeeds where Adam failed. Jesus succeeds where Israel failed. Jesus resisted the temptation of the devil. Adam didn't. Israel gave in to the devil's temptations to not be satisfied in God, to worship false gods, and to give in to Satan, to, to test God. And Jesus didn't. And so, when we think about the temptations for our life, you know, we may think, like, well, I don't really feel like those things really apply to me. Like, Satan's not talking, bringing me up to temples and telling me to jump off, or he's not you know, t- telling me to do these things. And this is one of those passages that people, you know, as I was preparing for this sermon, uh, not even before I was preparing, you know, usually I'm preparing the week before, but as I was just doing my normal reading and listening to stuff, I heard three different interpretations of people not even like specifically talking about this passage, but as they were just talking about relationships or church planting or pastoring or whatever, they were just like, oh, and by the way, Jesus was, the theme of these temptations was, uh, and it's like, oh, and they're all three different themes. And it's like one of these passages where there's just like a lot of different ways to see it because there's kind of a lot of uh, depth to it and power to it. And so I have given my interpretation of three ways we could take these three temptations and apply it to us. But if I maybe preach a sermon another year, I would maybe bring it out in three different ways and see it again. And so here's the three ways that I'm looking at it now and applying it to us um, but if I did it again, you know, this doesn't like exhaust all the options of how we might be tempted. So what are temptations we face um, that we, how we might take it? So I encourage you to write this down um, for you to pray through um, because then it's going to apply like, okay, we need to rely on the Spirit because that's what Jesus is doing. Um, he's in the wilderness. And you might be in a wilderness too. And these are temptations you would face. And we'll talk about what the wilderness is. So we have a temptation to believe if we had that one thing, we'd be satisfied. We have a temptation to believe that if we had that one thing, we'd be satisfied. Temptation to believe that if we had that one thing, we'd be satisfied. That's what, in Jesus' moment of, I'm hungry, 
And the devil comes and says, why don't you turn the stone to bread? You know, wouldn't you be better off if you had that one thing? Like, you're really hungry. You have that bread. Wouldn't you be satisfied? And Jesus says, no. Man doesn't live by bread alone. I live on the <coughs> every word that comes from the mouth of God. So we have this temptation to believe that if we had that one thing, we'd be satisfied. When life is difficult, when life is hard, when life isn't going our way, we say, well, if this just could be different, if this one thing could be different, I could, I could have this one thing, if this God would just do this one thing for me, then I would be satisfied. Then I would, I'd be relieved, I'd be comforted, I'd be different. Instead of saying, I have God, and that means I have everything I need. And that's what Jesus says. He's like, no, I don't need bread in this moment. I already have God. <coughs> and so he says, I will not look away from God. I will not. He, and the devil is even trying to say, like, you know what? You deserve it. You're the son of God. And so don't, can't you use that right? You might say, like, well, I deserve better than this. You deserve better than this. You're the son of God. Why don't you turn the stone to bread? Use your rights. You, you, you've done a lot. You're about to do a lot. Don't you deserve a little bread? I mean, think like, I deserve better than this. My situation, the trial, the affliction, the thing. I mean, I'm in this wilderness. I haven't eaten. I'm about to die. Can't I just have a little bread? I mean, whatever situation we're in, you should think, can't I just have this one thing, God, like, or from whoever? And we think, if I just had that one thing, I'd be satisfied. And that's our temptation instead of saying, I have God. And so I have the best thing. And that's what Jesus says to the devil. Second temptation. <clears throat> is a little, yeah, so it's the temptation to get good things the wrong way because it's quicker and easier. Temptation to get good things the wrong way because it's quicker and easier. <clears throat> temptation to get good things the wrong way because it's quicker and easier. <clears throat> This is what the devil tempts Jesus with in the second temptation. Is that he's like, it's a good thing that Jesus is going to get all authority in heaven and earth. That's something God is even promising to give him that is rightfully his. But he's not going to grasp it and get it his own way, get it the wrong way, quicker and easier than God has promised to give it to him in God's plan uh, how God's plan is set. He's going to do it God's will and God's way, not his own way. And the first temptation, too, he's going to do it God's way. I'm going to be satisfied God's way, not my way. And I'm going to get all authority in heaven and earth God's way, not my way. And we may think, you know, I need love and I need satisfaction. I have these longings and these heart desires. Well, we need to get good things the right way and in God's way, not the wrong way, quick and easy. We need to seek it in the way God wants. We can't seek uh, results and outcome without the pain, difficulty, hard work, and the weight. We need, can't seek quick, easier, faster. Thirdly, we have a temptation to question God's character. Temptation to question God's character. third temptation. And this is, this can be a difficult one because 
We might be in a hard season where we're saying, um, God, this is, you know, this is, I've been suffering, or I'm in a trial, or I'm in a difficult time. And we're wondering, are you here for me? Are you there for me? And there's some legitimate wrestlings that we can have. We see them in the Psalms. We see them in Lamentations. And so we're invited to bring those to God. But there's some illegitimate ways to wrestle with those things. And so we question God's character. The illegitimate way to do it is questioning God's character and making him prove his character by asking for signs or reassurances. And so questioning his trustworthiness or goodness or love. <coughs> if you love me, give me a sign. If you love me, you'll do this. If you're good, you'll do this. You know, if, if you're really a good God, this is what you'll do in my life. If you really love me, if you really care about me, this is what you're going to do. Or, you know, show me this or show me some, you know, evidence that you exist or something. That's like asking God to prove himself as if he hasn't already done it already. As if he hasn't already proven his faithfulness. As if he hasn't already proven his love. Like, you just need to do more, God. You haven't already proven it. And so it's questioning God's <coughs> character that he hasn't already been faithful and loving and good to us. Um, or we might ask, might question uh, him after something has happened. If you were trustworthy, if you were good, if you if you loved me, if you cared, you would have done X, or you would have never let X happen to me. And so it's like an after the fact thing of questioning his faithfulness, his goodness, his love. And you may have pro- you may think, well, you may have provided yesterday or last year or last time, but who knows about today? And so I need a sign today before I'm going to move forward. So that's how we question God's character. But it's we can move forward in things, in difficult things, or maybe wondering, I'm not sure how this is going to work out. And But we say, like, I'm clinging to you still, God. You say you're trustworthy. And, I, and I, you say you love me. And even though I'm not entirely sure how the things are going to work out, we still move forward in things without always needing new signs and reassurances instead of trusting him. So how do we face temptation looking at the spirit we already have the spirit we look back at chapter 3 verse 22 we already have it that if we trust in Jesus he gives us his spirit he's already declared us as sons and daughters he declares that he loves us that he takes pleasure in us and delights in us and the Holy Spirit is the seal of all of this God is with us that all these things that are true of Jesus as he goes into this wilderness into this time of the front lines of battle with Satan that we all face that uh, Ephesians 6 tells us we don't deal uh, with flesh and blood. Our battle is not against flesh and blood but against the powers of darkness, against Satan who's trying to make us uh, abandon our faith that we are not fighting flesh and blood, that we are fighting the same battle, the same temptations that we just talked about that Jesus faced, that we have the same spirit so that we can be successful in this fight like Jesus was, that we have that same spirit he declares us as sons and daughters. He declares his love for us that he takes pleasure in and delights in us as his children and he seals it all with the Holy Spirit. <coughs> Secondly, we need to be constantly filled with the Spirit's power and influence. We need to be filled with the Spirit. Like Jesus was. He was successful against Satan by relying on the Spirit. And we win the battle against the devil in the same way he did. Relying on the Spirit. The same power that raised Jesus from the dead is in us. Same spirit who filled Jesus is in us. We need to be led by the <coughs> Spirit. So we already have the Spirit. We need to be filled with the Spirit. We need to be led by the Spirit. 
And the Spirit doesn't lead us into temptation. The Spirit leads us into testing. And they're different. God tests. He does not tempt. Because God is not evil. He does not. He is not tempted, and so he does not tempt. But God tests. We're part of a kingdom that is at war. We're enlisted as soldiers in that war, and we're not civilians in the war. And Jesus does battle with the devil, and testing happens on the front lines, and not in the spa, or the cruise, or the resort. And we need to, fourthly, we need to know how to use the sword of the Spirit, which is God's word. You see, Jesus, where does he go to? He quotes scripture every single time. And Ephesians 6, 17 says, God's word is the sword of the Spirit. God's truth, and part of the test is knowing God's word, knowing God well enough that we aren't tricked by the devil when he says, you know, you should do this, or if this, if this, if this, if this, and we say, no, I know God well enough that that's not going to trick me. So we need to use the sword of the Spirit. And all of this is because God's preparing us to do his will in the power of the Spirit. If we went further and looked at verse 14, verse 18, we would see that Jesus comes out of the wilderness, he returns to public, populated areas, and he does so in the power of the Holy Spirit. And he comes and he starts preaching and telling people about the kingdom because the mission and task that he needed to do could only be accomplished in the power of the Spirit. And after this time of testing, this was like his the final qualification that, okay, as a son of God, he's ready to do the mission, the task that God has for them. And God... You may be in a time where you feel like, I am in the wilderness. I'm in a time of testing, a time when, man, I feel like the temptations are coming my way. I'm having to resist. I'm having to do things that are difficult. And God's putting me through. I feel like I'm just kind of getting got this, all this pressure on me. God may be preparing you for the most important thing that he's ever asked you to do in your life, um, just like he was doing Jesus. So it's not going to be wasted. If you want a big idea to summarize all of what the Spirit's role in our life in testing us and strengthening our faith, it's this, that the Spirit strengthens our relationship with God by putting us in positions where we need Him. The Spirit strengthens our relationship with God by putting us in positions where we need Him. Spirit strengthens our relationship with God by putting us in positions where we need Him. Because when we you know, are sitting in a... You don't test someone's faith when they're in a spa or in a resort or on a cruise that if you want to test someone's faith you have to put them in a position where they need faith, where they need trust where they need to rely on something or depend on something and then you see what they rely on or depend on or trust or put their faith in and so in the wilderness, in a time when we are having hardship or challenge or suffering or affliction that's when God sees what are we going to trust in where are we going to turn where are we going to put our faith what are we going to depend on and so the Spirit strengthens our relationship with God by putting us in positions where we need Him. And, and the good news is, is that when we fail to put our, our relationship with God, when we fail these tests, it doesn't put our relationship with God in jeopardy because 
Jesus passed the test perfectly on our behalf so that when we go through the test and we give into the temptation that we can still turn back to him and say, God, I did not go through that well. And so I rely on your grace and your forgiveness and your mercy that uh, you forgive me for that, for going through that poorly and for turning to other things, to, of not going, of not passing that test with flying colors because Jesus passed it on my behalf. But someone, that doesn't mean there's no consequences because someone can fail a test and forever walk away from God and say, you know what, I'm just, I gave into temptation, I'm just going to forever stay down that path. But when we can still turn back to God and say, God, I, fa- I failed there and I need your grace, um, would you please uh, forgive me for that? So how do we normally respond to the wilderness when the Spirit leads us there? We contend to pray that the wilderness goes away. We want to pray it away rather than follow God's lead into it. And the, the Bible tells us rejoice when you get led into the wilderness. Rejoice when you have trials of various kinds coming. Why? Because the testing of our faith strengthens us and matures us and grows us. And, and notice that God affirms Jesus as his son. He affirms his love for him. He takes pleasure and delight in Jesus as his son. He marks and seals Jesus as his son with the presence of the Spirit. So uh, Jesus is God's child, is deeply loved, is delighted in, and God is present with him by the Spirit. And then while full of the Spirit, he's led into the wilderness for a time of testing. And if you're in the wilderness now, in a time of trial and testing, maybe even suffering and affliction, it does not mean that you are not a child of God. It does not mean that God doesn't love you. It does not mean that God doesn't delight in and take pleasure in you. It does not mean that God isn't with you. It doesn't even mean that God isn't leading you and isn't close to you. In fact, God may be doing some of the most important work he will ever do in your life. And that's why the Bible tells us to rejoice and count it all joy and not to despise it or to grow weary of it. And I love the picture. It's over here. All these pictures are part of this series. I have to take it down so you can see it. This is the picture. Emma picked all these out. This is the picture Emma chose for relying on the Spirit. And I just loved it because it's this parent. It seems very treacherous, actually. I don't know. It fall off this log. But this parent, I'm assuming a parent, leading their child. And the closeness there. Like, how attentive is this parent to their child in this moment, leading them across this log? And there's this attentiveness, this tenderness, um, this closeness and the Spirit leading Jesus into the wilderness and that the closeness there of us imagining when the Spirit's leading us into the wilderness like couldn't be God being so close to us in that moment of like we think I'm in the wilderness here God like I'm suffering it's hard it's challenging life isn't going how I want it where are you like come back to this picture of like, well, he couldn't be any closer than he is in that moment. I mean, God's always close to us, but it's like, you know, he's so attentive to us of, of leading us. Like I try to put it up, I'll probably break it. Um, but God is so close to us in those moments. And there's this dependence and this tenderness and this love. And God and Satan will actually try to use the things of God to get us to doubt and um, I think about these balloons. I'm always really scared to blow up balloons. <clears throat> but think about a balloon. This balloon's pretty, 
pretty weak right now. But if you imagine your faith, like this balloon and the air in it, <coughs> what air being put in it is like, that's like expanding your faith. Kind of like when air gets put in it, it stretches it, right? But right now, it's filled with very little air. Every time we get stretched, that's like creating endurance on the balloon. But it's also creating a kind of stress on it. And it can feel, I mean, I can't imagine that it feels good to kind of be blown up. You know, if you're a balloon, it's like, that doesn't feel very good. But at the same time, it's also being filled with more. You know, like we're getting filled with the fruit of the Spirit, filled with God's presence, being filled with more of Christ's character, more experiencing more of God. And our faith is being stretched and we're getting able to experience more of God. And so we get... I'm blowing it up so you all get more and more nervous. I'd probably only be the one nervous, actually. I hate blowing up balloons. Yeah. But it's like, you know, imagine like, okay, we may feel like, okay, God, I'm good. I just want to be that big of a balloon. And it's like, he's like, no, no. I have more. I have more of me and more of Jesus' character that I want to put in you. And God keeps blowing and blowing. We say, no, no, I'm good now. And we just say, no, I'm going to stretch you more. And, we, and God is like, I want to keep taking you into the wilderness. And he keeps wanting to put more and more in us. So, some questions for you to consider. What temptations are you prone to? And in considering that, what temptations are you prone to? Watch out for if statements in your life. The devil used if statements with Jesus. If you love me, God, you do this. Or what ifs. You know, we go to what ifs. What if this happens? What if that happens? What if this and we don't move forward on things? Or, you know, if only this would be true. You know, if only this was true in my life and we get those temptations. Watch out for if statements in your life. And what scriptures do you need to combat those? scriptures do you need to combat those? As a church, we need to be people who long for and pray for and rejoice in God's transformative work in our lives. And it's not run from pain and challenge, uh, but embrace it because we know on the other side is more love and joy and peace and we don't avoid it or pray it away or for the test and the trial and the hardship to go away, but we follow the Spirit's lead and rely on Him because we know He's making us more like Christ through that process. 